Yeah? Pretty chill. Okay. Um, yeah, like I had said, uh, yeah, my name's David Rimstad. My wife, Emily, son, Calvin, he's 12. Lulu, she is, or Louise, she has a lot of names. Uh, Louise, she's nine. And then our sweet baby, Elizabeth, she's almost two. We currently serve in the country of Papua New Guinea, specifically among a tribal group named the Malayali. And we're going to kind of talk through that story and what that has looked like up until now. Uh, but, the, but the biggest thing that I want you guys to realize, I, I guess maybe the, the takeaway, is that this is one single book. Although there's so many different books, it's one single book with one single story and one single purpose. It's a mission that God has. You can almost call it a rescue plan that God has. My family and I have been serving in Papua New Guinea for the last 10 years, specifically eight of those among the Malayali people group. And early on, when we first heard that this was one story with one purpose, with its one mission that God has, and his heartbeat beats for the nations, that they would know him and worship him alone. I mean, we were super captivated by it. But guess what? It was the very first time that I heard this. And maybe some of you for the very first time are realizing, man, is this true what David is saying? That cover to cover, it's one story, one mission with one purpose, and it's God's heartbeat for the nations. That he is on a rescue mission with a rescue plan through his son Jesus Christ to not only liberate or rescue those among the nations, but to give them eternal life that they can worship him now and forever. And this story begins with God creating all things perfectly, right? God creates all things perfectly, and in so doing, he creates man and woman, male and female, Adam and Eve. And he created them in perfect innocence, placed them in the garden to guard and to cultivate, to keep and to garden. The fact is, inevitably, what would happen is they would fill up the earth with people, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, have dominion. That's what the Lord told the man and woman. Inevitably, they would have children that would completely fill out this earth. And eventually, this garden that was once small would encompass the entirety of the earth. But we know, according to Genesis chapter 3, that that didn't happen. They were deceived by the serpent, the devil, who entered the garden and deceived them by eating the fruit. But what we see is Adam and Eve in those next couple of chapters, specifically 4 and 5 and 6, they did not lose or they lost paradise, right? They lost the garden. They were casted out, but they didn't lose their purpose. Their purpose was to fill, have babies, fill up the land and have dominion, subdue it. But what do we see in Genesis chapter 6? We see something even greater, that now man has spread around the world, but their hearts are so incredibly wicked. Every intention of their thought and every intention of their heart is continually evil. So what the Lord did was he caused a great flood and he saved Noah and his family and the created order of animals. After the flood, do you know what God said to Noah and his sons? The very same thing he said to Adam and Eve. He's starting over. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. Be kings. Rule. 
so that eventually the whole earth would be covered in the knowledge of me and all peoples will be able to have access and worship me. But what do we see according to Genesis chapter 10 and Genesis chapter 11? Oh, they got numerous. Adam and Eve and their family had babies and they had babies and they got big generation upon generation. But what we're seeing is they weren't wanting to scatter. They weren't wanting to fill out the earth. They were wanting to stay in one place and build a city. They were in direct disobedience to what God had told them. Be fruitful, multiply, and what? Fill out the earth. But instead, they were fruitful, they multiplied, but they wanted to stay in one place. And we call it Babel. They not only built this city to disobey the Lord and stay in one place, but they built a tower as well. Do you remember why they built a tower? Not only did they build a city so they would not scatter, but they built a tower so that their name alone could be praised. That they're building this tower so that God himself would come down and marvel at them instead of them looking up to heaven and marveling at him. And do you know what happens? Yahweh and his counsel actually does come down, but he doesn't marvel at them. He confuses their languages and scatters them throughout the world. These nations go into darkness. This one language, according to Genesis chapter 11, becomes numerous languages. And this one people group become numerous people groups. And they are without access to the one true God. They are now in the dark. Without hope. So in Genesis chapter, Genesis chapter 12, God starts his rescue plan. He chooses Abraham and he creates Abraham into a great nation. And that nation moves into the land that they were promised that they would be a light to those nations that did not have access to Yahweh. Because of Genesis chapter 11, these nations, these scattered peoples are now utterly in darkness. And that's where they're going to remain unless the light of Yahweh shines. And that's what Israel's purpose was. But you guys, something so incredibly sad about Israel is that they had all the privilege. They had all the blessings. They had everything at their fingertips. And they loved to be loved by Yahweh. They loved to be cared for by him. They loved to have him as their king to fight their battles. But you know what? Although they experienced that kind of love, it drove them to find love somewhere else. They wanted to love other worthless things. And eventually, according to 1 Kings and Isaiah chapter 9, Israel themselves were plunged into darkness. This massive campaign from the Assyrian army came in and completely scattered all of Israel into the darkness of the nations. And that's where they remained. The nations and Israel in utter darkness until Matthew chapter 4. And what we see in Matthew chapter 1 is that Jesus is the king. What we see in Genesis or Matthew chapter 2 is that Jesus is the brand new Moses, a better Moses to liberate his people. What we see in Genesis chapter or Matthew chapter 3 is that Jesus is now the savior of the world. He comes out of the water and the dove descends just like the dove came back to tell Noah, hey, the floodwaters are receding. Here's an olive leaf. The dove descends upon Jesus and for the first time in human history, people can see and we as the readers can read Satan, sin, and death. Their time has come to an end because the savior is now 
here. He's led into the wilderness and he becomes this brand new Adam. He was willing to go into temptation and won every single battle against Satan because he obeyed the Father's word perfectly. Jesus did in 40 days what Israel couldn't do in 40 years. He literally just obeyed his Father. And he became this brand new man. And do you know what it says? You know what the first thing that Jesus does right after in Matthew chapter 4 it says he entered Capernaum, and being in Capernaum, Capernaum, he set foot in the land of Zebulon and Naphtali. And do you know what he does? He shines the light for the very first time in the darkness. You guys, this is one story, one mission with one purpose, liberating the people who are in the dark with the light of the glorious grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And do you know what we see at the very end of this one story, right? It's not just one thing to give your life or to spend your life for the sake of making Jesus Christ known. It's to literally die on that behalf because we know the end of the story. In Revelation 5, 9, Revelation 5, 7, and 9, it says, all peoples from all nations, languages, tribes, and peoples, they have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And then we see in Revelation 7, 9, John is seeing this vision of heaven. And he says, this is what I saw, you guys. I saw every tribe. I saw every nation. I saw every language. I saw every people group surround the throne of God and worship him for all time. It's one story from cover to cover. Genesis to Revelation, one mission with one purpose, shining the light where the darkness still prevails. But do you know what? Man, I miss this story. For a large part of my life, I missed it. Do you know why I missed it? You guys, sometimes we know truth. We may know the truth, but we miss the verse. And if we miss the verse, then we miss the story. And if we miss the story, then we miss our purpose. And if we miss our purpose, we will stand before the Lord with a wasted life. You will be saved, 1 Corinthians says, but all the things that you put your hand to, they'll be burned up. One time, my, one of my really good friends the man who discipled me. He said, David, can you finish this verse? Be still and... And I said, know that I am God. Right? Can anybody finish that verse? The verse is, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. My name will be proclaimed among all peoples. Psalm 46. You see, we get the truth. Be still and know that I'm God, but we miss the verse. Be still. Why? Because when we look at this mission that exists, we can grow frustrated. We can grow weary. We can grow exhausted. And he says, no, no, no. Be still. Know this. I will be proclaimed among the nations. My name will be proclaimed among all peoples. You guys, so many times we get the truth. But we miss the verse. And you guys, if we miss enough of those verses, then we miss the story. 
And if we miss the story, then we miss the purpose. And if we miss the purpose, man, we may waste our life. We were hit with this, this one story. My wife and I, man, we couldn't think about doing anything other than going to the nations. And I remember when we stepped foot in Malayali, they were uh, a people group. It took us days to hike into. Nobody knew that they existed. They have a language that has never been spoken outside of their tribal context. This language has no Rosetta Stone. They don't have an alphabet. They're a completely oral language. They were completely cut off. No one knew that they existed. We didn't even know they existed. No one knew their name. But the day we stepped into Malayali, we heard their language for the very first time, and we had no idea what the heck they were saying. And after we built our houses, we cut down some trees, we got a sawmill, we milled timber so that we could build our houses. And when our houses were set and ready, our families moved in and we began to learn their language. Man, we would, we would walk outside, the very first day of learning language, we'd walk outside and we'd just listen, wanting to write down anything that we could in regards to language. And we heard off into the distance. Now, boo, wab, ya, Now, boo, wab, ya, Second, second. And we're like, what the heck are they saying? And those words, those sentences, we began to write down sounds, which turned into words, which ultimately turned into phrases, which turned into sentences and paragraphs and stories. And after a few years, we tested into the fluency of their language. And we began to create a literacy program so they can read and write in their language for the very first time. Because our intent was not that we would just proclaim the gospel, something that they had never heard, but we wanted them to read it for themselves. We wanted them to see it with their own eyes. So creating a literacy program so that they could read and write in their language, we had some graduating classes, men and women that were willing and ready uh, to write and read the scriptures that we began to translate. And as we began to translate scripture, the people knew why we were there. We said, listen, from the very beginning, and as much as we could explain, but then later on when we gained their language, when we gained an understanding, we were really able to explain, we're here to learn your language and culture. We're here to teach you how to read and write in your language. We're here to translate this book of the one true God, and we want to teach you from cover to cover. And they knew why we were there, and they were ready to hear the message that we had come to bring. This first video is just a small glimpse of what those two stages, house building, language learning, and literacy looked like. So it was eight years, uh, roughly eight years up to this point. And man, the Malayali people were ready. We had learned their language. We have men and women that can now read in their language. And we've started the translation process, and we're just cooking on all cylinders. What we did, we had 53 lessons. So think about it this, like 53 chapters from Genesis to Revelation to tell this one chronological story of God's redemptive history among the nations. And it was the Malayali people's turn to hear it. 53 lessons that we began to teach the Malayali people. And man, were they blown away 
when we did our very first lesson about before all things ever existed, there was this relationship, this triunity between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and they were just enraptured with joy, so incredibly happy. They needed nothing, wanted nothing, they just wanted to be together. All the Malayali people, yip, 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 yip. They would just scream. They were so happy. What is this joy? What is this happiness? We want this. We want this. And man, we get to the garden. And then we get to the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And they're weeping. Not because of what Adam and Eve did, but because they, for the first time, can see themselves in the story of God. That they themselves have sin as well. And then Genesis chapter 3.15, dude, they're pumped. This Messiah, this one who will come, the Yomatifu Mofi, the man who will cut a road. Yomatifu le yufkwak moapoteu, oapote with God la lua mofi maneliame, anelia with God le ariali alo muloya, yauni yauni nanafu with new. This is the guy who's gonna come and he's gonna crush the head of the serpent, he's gonna remove his people's sins, and he's gonna bring them back into a right relationship with himself. And he's going to do it through this one man. Oh, they were pumped, man. They were so excited. Who's this one man? So we get to the story of Noah. And they're like, dude, this is a friend of the Lord. This is going to be the man. Is he here? Can we meet him? And they realize, man, this is not the guy. Severely depressed. Then we get to Abraham. They're like, man, this is the guy. He's a friend. Look at all the promises. This is the one who we've been waiting for. And then they realize, nope, he's not the one we're waiting for. Then we get to Moses, and they're like, yes, this is the one. Moses is the one. He's going to rescue Israel, and then he's going to come on one of these roads, and he's going to rescue us. And we keep on reminding, dude, this was like thousands of years ago, you guys. You're not, you're not going to meet this guy. He's not going to come on your road. They get to Moses, and they're like, this is the one, this is the one. And then sadly, they realize, no, he's not. And then we get to the story of David, king of Israel. And they're like, this is it. This is him. This is who we've been waiting for. You know why? Because your parents wouldn't name you David unless your name represented the Messiah. We know it's David. We know it's David. This is why your parents named you this way. And you know what they realized? Man, it wasn't. But then we got to John the Baptist, and they heard for the very first time, dude, there's someone preparing the way of the Lord, and he's going to announce his coming. And when Jesus steps on the scene, we're like, there he is. And they said, his name is Jesus. Pisu, one of the oldest men, is like, dude, this whole time, these mountains that have been surrounding us in Maliali land, it's like they've covered us, and our ancestors have taught us in the dark. That's all they've been able to teach us is just lies. But it's like you guys have come with shovels and you're starting to dig us out. And for the very first time, we're seeing light. Thank you so much for coming. And they saw Jesus' life over amazing things. But do you know what they resonated with most? Jesus got low. He got low enough to shake hands, to touch the sick, to be around the lowest of the low. Although he is the king of kings and lord of lords, he stoops down, enters the mess, and he's with us. They were blown away. So thankful. This is the one we've been waiting for. Just tell us what to do. This is the one we've been waiting for. 
and then they see a narrative start to unfold. Man, Jesus is not respected. Whoa, Jesus is being accused. And one day, weeping, after we did a skit, they said, they crucified him. They hung him on a cross. And you know what somebody aptly said? I think we need to continue to wait. I think he's hanging like the bronze serpent in the Old Testament. Everybody had to look to him. Everybody had to look to this snake for healing. I think we need to just wait. Three days later, when we did lesson 48, they saw the risen Lord and they said, yes. He's the one who's taken our sin. He's the one in whom our punishment fell. He died in our place. He is our king. And we ought to bow our knee and swear our loyalty to him. Because he's the one we've been waiting for. There is no other one. We've been waiting and waiting and waiting. He's finally come. And I looked at many of them and I said, you guys, are you going to bow the knee in allegiance? And they said, David, what else can we do? He's the only one to be able to take our sin away. This video, this next video, is just a small picture of what that season of teaching looked like. A people group that we did not know existed, a language that we did not know uh, beforehand, moving in, building our houses, starting to learn uh, among them. That was eight years of ministry, and we have 15 to 20 years more of ministry. I mean, we want to see a Bible translated into their language. We want to see elders and deacons. We want to see a fully functioning church, and then the work of Ministry among the Malayali people can be handed off to those mature teaching elders and we can be done ultimately with the task. But I hope you've been asking the question. If not, that's okay. Man, what was that one truth? What was that one thing that made you sell all things, move your family? I mean, you saw the little baby with the fluffy cheeks, right, in the helicopter? That was Lulu. She's nine now. She was young, dude. Our kids were young. Like, what would make us do that? You guys, I grew up in a Christian home. My dad was a pastor. I heard the gospel over and over and over and over and over. About nine years of age, it was like I heard it clearly for the very first time. And I believed that Jesus was the one to pay my sin. But in his death and because of his resurrection, I can have eternal life with him forever. That's exactly what I wanted. At nine years of age, I bowed my knees, swore my allegiance, and this is my king. This is who I'm going to follow. But time kind of, as I began to grow up, junior high, into high school, I was making small compromises that turned into bigger compromises that turned into major behavioral issues, habits. And I remember being at camp, you guys, Tuesday night. I was on my bed. It wasn't even after chapel. No one was in the room. It was just me. On the bunk. I have no idea why I was there. But I remember a clear as day. It was like a thousand seeds had blossomed in my heart. And for the very first time I realized, if God really is who he says he is, if Jesus really is king, then my life should look really different. 
and I wanted to become a pastor. I set the road that I wanted. I knew where I was going to college. I knew where I was going to go to seminary. I knew I was going to come back to California and plant a church. And then in this span of me going to college and walking on this road, I, I paved my road. I set it out. Man, a, a, a man named Brian Zuniga comes in the fray of my life and pokes the bubble for the very first time. David. Can you name me one verse about the nations? David, finish this verse. Be still and, you guys, I had missed the story. I knew the truth. Oh, I knew the truth. I was going to California Baptist University to get my theology degree. I knew so much truth, but I missed enough verses to miss the story. And because this is my story, this is how I felt. I felt so incredibly obligated that I could not do anything but pick up my family and go overseas. You know why? Because for thousands of years, since Genesis chapter 11, the scattered peoples among the nations are still in the dark. 7,000 people. Close to 3.5 billion people have little to no access of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That means the gospel will really never eventually meet them unless someone goes and shares it for the first time, learning their language and sharing it to them clearly. But do you know there's 3,000 people groups that do not have the Bible translated into their language? They have no resource. There is no church and there is no Christian in their language. They will never hear the gospel of Jesus Christ unless someone goes, steps foot, learns their language of that place, and for the very first time in their history, through their language, shares the gospel of Jesus Christ with them for the very first time. But, there's something even greater. There are people groups, like the Malayali people, that we don't even know exist. The darkness is so deep, it is such a domain. There are people locked away. Do you know what that one truth was? It puts us on an even playing field with Paul. Do you know what God said to Ananias when Paul was converted? Ananias was like, man, I don't want to meet up with Paul. He's killing everybody. And God said, no, I have reserved the right for him to be special, to be chosen. I'm going to make him useful to declare my name among the nations. You know what salvation does? It puts us all on an even playing field. I don't care what your background is. I don't really care what you were in before or after, but now salvation has leveled the playing field. We are useful vessels for the Lord, doing his work locally and globally. Man, for the first time I was met with the truth. Is God calling me to be useful, not locally, but globally? And that's what he had for us. And some of you may be thinking, well, I'm too young, I can't go. Well, that's great. Because when Jesus looked at the crowds, he looked at his disciples and said, you know what the first thing you need to do? You need to pray. Look, the harvest is plentiful. But the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out more laborers. Man, students, pray. I don't know what to pray. Well, let's just start praying for this. Pray for the nations. Pray for the peoples. Pray for the languages. Pray for the tribes. That God would send out more workers into his harvest field. Why? 
because he has made us useful. Before Christ, we were useless, without hope, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. But because of Christ, he, was, he has brought us near and has made us useful. So first and foremost, begin to pray. Leaders, man, if you want to connect, we're here for a few years. We'd love to help you pipeline your students. We'd love to help you pipeline prayer. Um, you can grab contact info. We'd love to be useful for you guys. You guys, thank you so much. I pray that you saw for the very first time, or maybe again, that this is one story cover to cover with one mission, one purpose, and you can be a part of it.